This episode of The Interchange is made possible by Absa and Simu. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of The Interchange Season 2. We are coming to you from Cliff Central Studios in Josie. I am your host, Busim Kumbuzi. Now, what if the state covered your cost of living? Would you still go to work, go back to school, not work at all? This concept is called the Universal Basic Income, UBI, and it's nothing less than the most ambitious social policy of our times, but probably the most fitting in the context of Industry 4.0. In 2017, basic income started gaining momentum across the world, and a growing number of countries are considering it as an alternative to welfare. But how would it work, and what are the key arguments for and against it? We find out in today's episode of The Interchange. Our motion for today is in light of the imminent loss of jobs in the fourth industrial revolution, this house will impose a universal basic income. And to debate this motion, I have in proposition William Shorkey, student writer and human rights researcher, Neo Masuewu, graduate in philosophy, debate coach and documentary filmmaker at Young Nation Media. And in opposition, Priscilla Ndlovu, a chemical engineering student, model, and activist, um, and Dumelo Bore, politics student, kin linguist, and avid traveler. We also have with us in studio episode expert Humutsa Mukwena, who is a lecturer at the University of Johannesburg in the Department of Procedural and Mercantile Law. Humutsa has worked as a legal researcher for formal justice Kate O'Regan, current Chief Justice Mukweng Mukweng, and the late former Chief Justice Arthur Chaskelson of the Constitution Court of South Africa. Humutsa? UBI in South Africa, how would it work? Why would we even want to apply it? You know, looking at uh, for uh, Industry 4.0, are we ready even for the job losses that we're going to see? Uh, thank you, Busisiwe. Um, I think what's really, really interesting about Industry 4.0, but I mean, just to add, we're actually moving very much closer to the fifth industrial revolution. Um, uh, forget about the fourth. We're even, we're even past the <laughs> oh fourth in some sectors in some of our society. Um, a lot of sectors of our society are actually still moving into the second industrial revolution. Yeah. So there's a lot of imbalance about where our, na- our nation our is, is, generally yeah. speaking. Um, in relation to a, a, a universal basic income grant specifically, job losses are imminent mm, in our society. Mm, and mm. I think we've seen a great number of retrenchments, um, huge retrenchments, thousands of people being retrenched in one go, um, branches of banks being closed all in one go. Mm. So those are the sort of the challenges that we're facing already. Mm. Um, and that is something we can't really avoid mm. with the way technology is moving at the speed at which it's moving. Uh, the question, uh, in, in a lot of people, when they speak positively about the fourth industrial revolution, will say things like, it will create more jobs, different mm. jobs. Um, the question is, is our society ready to fill those positions? Is our education system adequate enough to equip learners to fill those positions? I don't think where we are right now, that is the case. Mm. So what I'm really excited to hear about in this debate is, um, whether or not we can reconsider the way our society works, yeah. whether or not we can reconsider the way we think about work, mm, how mm, necessary mm. is it for our um, understanding of who we are as mm. human beings to mm. work. Mm. Um, and that's really, if 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 you're going to have a universal basic income grant, you have to be okay with a large group of the population not working. Yeah. And that group of the population itself has to be okay with itself not working. Mm. Um, so it's really... a, a, a a much greater philosophical question than just one about money. Can we afford it? But also, in addition to the philosophical questions that I'm raising, 
the question is, can we as a society afford something like a universal mm. income grant and how will it be funded? Mm. I wish I had the answers. I'm mm. hoping to hear the answers from the students mm. because right now our country is not necessarily in the position to afford something like that, but that might be a question of mismanagement of funds yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'd be very, very interested to see what the students have to say about that. All right, but before we get into the debate, let's get into the rules. We're following the British parliamentary format. We have four speakers, two on each side. The first two are proposition and the last two are opposition. In terms of speaking order, Prop 1 will speak first and Op 2 will speak last. And in terms of how much time our speakers have, four minutes is the allocated time and the first and the final minute are protected, which means that in between, the opposing team can point can give, sorry, points of information. Debaters, are you ready? Yeah. Cool. Ready I'm going to hand over to William to kickstart the debate here, here. The case for a universal basic income grant is often advanced as people think about the potential mass empl- unemployment that the fourth industrial revolution might cause. But let's not be under any delusions. We're already in a crisis. 40% of South Africans are unemployed. 30 million South Africans earn less than a thousand rand a month. That is more than 55% of the population. South Africa has the highest inequality in the world with a Gini coefficient of 0.63. Only 10% of the population earns two-thirds of national income. And if you earn 20,000 rand a month, you fall in the top 2% of income earners in the entire country. But despite that, recent research shows that 78% of South Africans are without money in the middle of the month. We're already in a crisis. And the case that we want to advance today is to say, given this crisis, given that the South African economy is not working to support people, to support their basic needs, a universal basic income grant is urgent and necessary, Mm. regardless of the ways in which the economy might change. Mm. So I'd like to focus on two arguments in this speech. The first is, why is there a moral imperative to institute a universal basic income grant? And secondly, why do we think, given the economic uncertainty that stands before us, a universal basic income grant might cushion the fall? So to deal with the first point, why is there a moral imperative to institute a universal basic income grant? We think that the economy under neoliberal capitalism has been Mm. bad by design. We think Mm. that it's been designed in such a way that a small echelon of the population is able to reap the rewards of the collective efforts of an entire society. The case for a universal basic income grant, therefore, is about figuring out how can we allow the entire population to share in the spoils of the national wealth that Mm. is generated. We think, for example, if you are in a family and that family earns an inheritance once a family member passes away, it's a similar idea when you think of a universal basic income grant, that the entire country should earn a social inheritance of sorts. And this is what happens when you institute a modest, regular payment to everyone in the community, Mm. regardless of their employment level, regardless of their income level, and regardless of whether or not they might be working. Mm. So how would this work exactly? Because a response I anticipate the other side making is that we can't afford this. We don't have the money to support a universal basic income grant, especially when we're already Uh, uh, earmarking lots and lots of funds Mm. for social welfare programs. Well, the answer is the case exists regardless of whether or not we can afford it, but we can afford it. We think if you look at a country like South Africa, people aren't thinking creatively as to how our social resources can be used. As it stands, South Africa is losing 
millions and millions of rands by failing to do simple things such as tax companies properly through things such as tax evasion, base and profit erosion. South Africa loses more than $57 billion every single year. We think one way we could institute a universal basic income grant Mm -hmm. is through sovereign wealth funds. Now, a sovereign wealth fund is an income generating asset portfolio that most governments across the world have. So they invest in stocks, bonds, real estate Mm -hmm. and precious metals. But none of this is actually used for social purposes. We think that as governments invest in these income generating assets, they should issue a dividend to the population. A sovereign wealth fund should no longer be a a sovereign wealth fund, but instead should be a social wealth fund in which we socialize financial assets in which we think that the economy and everyone in that economy can collectively benefit, own, control the mm. assets that the country possesses. We think that if we especially institute this in the time of rising economic uncertainty, then far from people being discouraged to work, we actually give them the economic confidence to use their creativity, to upskill, to learn in ways that they can contribute to the economy because mm. we think that precarity causes a lot of stress, a lot of strain, and and damages people's ability to make meaningful contributions your to their society. Your time is up, unfortunately, Will. But uh, we hope that your sentiments will be carried through in your prop speaker too. But in the meantime, let's have opposition speaker Juan Priscilla to rebut that case. Here, here. Thinking creatively in South Africa is something that sounds nice, but it's problematic in an instance where we're looking at a deadweight country where already people aren't actually informed about things like entrepreneurship skills, about thinking creatively about all that because they are from backgrounds that do not give them the opportunity to do so. Why that is something that is important is that in an instance where now we're involving state funds and state money, that is the last resort because we are already in a crisis. It becomes problematic to use that money and put in people who are most likely to misuse it anyways because they are from a background that doesn't allow them to actually think creatively and come up with entrepreneurship opportunities. Well, that is prob- it's, actually, it's actually risky for the government to put this hope on people who are most likely not even going to use that money in a way that is going to remove us mm. from the crisis that we're actually in. And that's something that we need to value and something that we need to prioritize. So the side that wins today's debate is a side that shows two things. Mm. Number one, that the mechanism of UBI is something that is sustainable and something that is going to long last even in the near future. But secondly, that since it's the only incentive that government is providing now, how sure is it that it's going to maintain it? Because in an instance where we're discussing money, and I'll show you that in my speech, how South African government is something that is problematic and something that we need to understand it could, could get worse and rather could become something that is going to actually be problematic to mm. citizens. But more than that, the second c- c- criteria that we need to understand is what is work and why is it important? For a country that Priscilla, is actually developing, we need to understand that it has to be inherent to people and beneficial to them. In an instance where people are now not actually being incentivized to be productive and to actually work in order to better themselves, but rather secure secure for mediocrity that is just by receiving income from the government. It becomes a problem right now because what we're telling people is that it's okay to settle for what the government is telling you, but that is not productive, not to the person itself, but moreover to the country itself. Because when we're in a crisis like this, we need to provide incentives that are in turn going to benefit the economy itself. And we haven't received any analysis in terms of how just giving out this universal basic income is going to ensure that South Africa, it's the South African economy is going to receive some form of beneficial actually income by actually providing this policy that, that is become, it, it becomes problematic. But what is the kind of government that we're actually looking at the South African government and why is it something and why do we think that this policy is most likely to fail? Three things. Number one, we said that it already fails to provide social aid like finding tertiary institutions for, stu- for students. It fails to give out social grants without actually having any sort of issues or without actually having some 
form of problems. Whether when we put people's lifestyles right now, telling them not to work because you're going to actually cater for them becomes a problem because you're most likely going to fail. We've seen history in terms of how South Africa actually misfunds, actually has a problem when it comes to finding people Priscilla, and actually managing their funds. Whether it becomes a problem to ensure that we now base this on what citizens, or we now base this, or we now base citizens' lifestyles on such a policy because we think the South African government is already still failing. But, but two, that. what happens when the government runs out of money in the near future since this is just a backup plan of its own mechanism? It's a problem. But then lastly, we tell you that, ladies and gentlemen, what is most likely to happen instead is government cutting out its funding from other social programs, but rather focusing on this new mechanism to ensure that each and every resident in South Africa receives that form of fund or receives that form of in- income. Ladies and gentlemen, we need to engage with the South African government in instances where it's dealing with money, and we need to understand that it's a very problematic government and something that is most likely going to backlash. But what is the source of social aid, and why do we need to value that? We get all this money from from taxes and things like companies paying these taxes. What is most likely to happen is this most, most likely to double taxation and ensure that people are now paying more. Why that is a problem is that now that we're taking these taxes from people, we're now actually going to take more from them and giving them in return, which goes against the whole idea of social aid. We don't need to value that as the government because already we're at a crisis, we're in a crisis and trying to create some form of agency. And therefore, in order for us to progress, we need to ensure that we value that with countries. Priscilla, your there. time is up. Thank you for that speech. I'm now going to hand over to the proposition speaker too to close his case here, here. So what is indicative in opposition is a serious problem in not understanding the basic economic argument for this case. One of my favorite economists' name is Yanis Varoufakis, and he speaks very poignantly about two specific things. He calls it the twin peak tower problem. There is massive amounts of savings by massive corporations, while at the same time there is economic inertia, meaning that companies are A, not investing enough, and two, not paying enough tax. What they do not respond to excessively in their case is not rebutting our, 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 our very important claim when we say that multinational corporations are complicit in many ways in the global inequality that we face today. But more importantly, they do not actually understand the structural impediments of actually allowing the same neoliberal policies to continue into the fourth fourth and fifth industrial revolution. A couple of responses that we just want to give. Firstly, we'd like to say that opposition, even in their best instances, have been incredibly paternalistic like the South African government. The biggest problem that we have today is policymakers and government people assuming that the only way to solve these things is if we create more jobs. The best way to unlock economic opportunity for many people that are below the poverty line is to give them more money. They speak very poignantly about passionately about things like entrepreneurship but entrepreneurship is only enabled if you create an environment where those people have the kind of human potential that can be exploited. Quite simply put, you're not able to do that under their model because you're still perpetuating the same structural problems that have been enacted in the past. But more importantly, Ceteris Paribas, put this everything aside, even in the best instance where social policies that have been put in place by governments no. do not necessarily exist anymore. We think this is a much better moral claim mm. and a much better case because mm. at the end of the day, we think we care more for people that have been on the sidelines of economic, yeah, yeah. Be, be, that have not benefited from the economic fruits of success in this country. Mm. In a country like South Africa that's vastly unequal, we do not have the choice of not actually enacting this policy. Yes. Mm. We have two response, uh, responsive cases, two, two responsive claims to this point, right? The first one is we're just going to be discussing bullshit jobs. If 
if you look at the moment, what's happening is that you have a lot of bullshit jobs, unfortunately, uh, yeah. due to the advent reality of neoliberal capitalism, mm. where individuals are put into place where they become cashiers, they become yeah. people that they, they become car guards, and that's basically the same status quo yeah. that they're relying on. When you give a universal basic income, people can actually focus on things that Never. actually unlock yes. their human potential, yes, things that they absolutely. actually care about, yeah. because actually currently what's happening is a lot of these jobs are A, very stagnant, two, are indicative of the fact that capitalism is not necessarily ascriptive to human development but second but thirdly ladies and gentlemen we think that you're not actually unlocking the human potential that these people have so the third and final part of our case that's going to close out what will has been saying is that a lot of these people that are facing a lot of economic precarity currently speaking do not have what we call bargaining power Mm. capital only responds to money Mm. and the moment you allow people to actually have an incentive whereby they can actually collectivize their own power that's the only way in which those people can actually engage you currently do not have that in the status quo because those people are, A, not paid the minimum wage in many instances. That's the Indeed. same reason why you see yeah, a lot yeah. of farm workers actually being killed for, for asking for a very yeah, simple yeah. case. And let's be very clear. 15 rands in South Africa is nothing. 20 rands in South Africa is nothing. A universal basic income in many ways, in many countries where it's been tested, is a median income that actually allows people to unlock their economic potential. You do not have that currently. But more importantly, Raz, we think that money in and of itself, if we're talking about money supply is an an exponential effect meaning for their part in response we think you're actually allowing companies to invest more in people you're allowing people to invest in one another because there's a marketplace of ideas a marketplace of creativity someone Mm. who doesn't want to be a cashier can actually follow their dream to be a painter and we think that's much more justified because it's human satisfaction but at the end of the day you're also creating an economic incentive that allows them to actually invest in something that they truly care about that That is not happening in opposition (laughs) Thank you so much, Neil. To close the opposition case and to close the debate, I'm now handing over to the opposition speaker to hear here. Cool. So, like, let's not be deluded or in any sense, like, kind of misguided by this kind of idealistic view that both prop speakers give you where they say, we should just give people money and that makes sense. At the beginning of Will's speech, he tells you that by month end, most of the people inside, most, most workers in South Africa have already lost or used up all their money. Is this because they don't get enough money or because, because they lack the financial intelligence uh, to actually use their money shame. well for enough? Shame. I think this is particularly shame, something that's man. really important because it points out the logical inconsistency in their case, right? You want to give people more money so they can use it more recklessly. We don't think this makes no, sense. For we don't think this helps the people that you think it does help. We think that's, like, in a sense, problematic, right? So what am I going to do in this speech? A couple of things, right? So I'm going to look at, I think, an exploration of the fact that when we talk about traditional jobs or the traditional work environment, what does it look like on an everyday basis? Because at the end of the day, the team that wins this debate is a team that understands or leaves the worker far better equipped, right? And I think that's particularly important because what happens is in traditional working space, the speaker already tells us the fact that we're going towards the fifth industrial One revolution. Up. The we is not can, necessarily. Can I interrupt you quickly? Not yet, right? The we doesn't necessarily speak to South Africa in a sense because South Africa is going through multiple revolutions at the same time, right? I think that's something we have to take in consideration, right? I think that's something that's particularly important. But moreover, in traditional working jobs and how the traditional work environment in and of itself is work, like is kind of evolving, right? We think we need to better equip workers to this evolving work environment. How do you do this, right? Because the how is always going to be a very important question. We don't think you do this by giving these workers more Quick money, right? Because if you have more money, that doesn't mean you are well equipped to now, in essence, compete against artificial intelligence, to compete, to compete about against these things. We don't think that's something that, in essence, happens. What you do Stop. then, right? And if you have your problem, like your, you want to come preach socialism here and tell us that the <laughs> are problematic. Yeah, yeah. That's fine. That's fine. That's okay. 
okay. But at the end of the day, if you want these multinational corporations to be the ones that pay, then they have to invest more in their workers. How do they do this? By giving their workers far more training that they are overqualified for their work that they're currently working. This means to say that if they want to jump ship and they want to evolve and have that upward mobility, this is something that's also feasible, right? And it's something that this money is being reinvested in by a company that knows where the money ought to go, not by a reckless spender. It's just going to create and perpetuate the cycle of inequality, right? Before I carry on, Will. Okay, look, the problem is not workers being undertrained. Since the 1970s, labor productivity has been in the up, but wages are stagnant and the cost of living is increasing. People are underpaid, overworked, and that's why they run out of money by the middle of the month. It's not because they're lazy. I think, like, look, right, I think what you misunderstand, and it's, I think it's a problem with, like, the black middle class in South Africa, is that they think they understand the way the world works because of their black middle class bubble, right? At the end of the day, people have other nah, expenses to pay for, right? It's not the fact that they're getting too little money. It's the fact that they don't know how to spend their money. Black people black people will go and buy things on lay-by, constantly be paying that off, and you want to tell me that that person is being financially savvy with their money? That's uh, not necessarily shame, true. That's the reality, right? We don't think you tell us people are getting underpaid. Things are getting more expensive. But another contributing factor, you can go home. Thanks. Right. Another contributing <laughs> factor to that that people don't know how to use One their money. Left. And also, the most important thing, and like the flaw that we get in the entirety of proposition, right, is this dichotomy. Right. It's either you're working and you're getting underpaid, or the fact that you're unemployed. Right. In between those two choices, there's another option. Right. That option being, if you give these people better training, right, there's no threat of the fourth industrial revolution hanging over your head. Right. And you're better equipped to deal with tomorrow. We think that's something that we try and give you in opposition, and we're not going to give you this misguided Marxist liberals bullshit that they give you in proposition. <laughs> right. Thank you so much for that. Whoa, heated though towards the end. Humoto, uh, you're blinking. <laughs> Come through for us with a way to, to resolve the these issues. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know if, 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 if I can resolve the issues, but some of the, the, the things that I thought of as the speakers were, were debating. Um, look, there's a, there's a, um, a problem with capitalism in itself. For capitalism to exist, the society has to be unequal. Mm. It doesn't work if people are equal. So I think that the problem is that if we view everything from this capitalist lens, there's only one or two ways you can see it. And I think that's the way the opposition is seeing it. Um, and I think that's maybe why some of you, your perspectives are quite paternalistic because it's the only way capitalism works if there's people to, to look down on, actually. Um, and I think uh, even the idea that um, uh, people have to be productive, why do we have this notion that society, that human beings have to be productive? Why is productivity the measure of human value? Um, and I think that's something that we, I would want our society to rethink completely. I like some of the ideas about um, uh, human potential being unlocked if you have a universal basic income grant because it removes the notion that the only value an individual has to add is productivity, more money making. Um, and can't we really consider how society works, rework, reconsider how society works as a whole? I'm moving away from the mic again. So, <laughs> and then even the, the view that, you know, people when they receive a UBI will, will misuse that, those funds. Even that's a, a, you know, it's a, it's a neoliberal capitalistic view of society that that's how people, these poor people don't know how to use their money. <laughs> so that to mm-hmm. me is, is deeply problematic. I agree with it. Um, I even in, there was a trial mm-hmm. recently done in Namibia for a UBI in a small community in Namibia uh, for a UBI, about 1,000 people were given the grant for a certain period of time. And in that time, I think it was three years, they reduced poverty from 76% to 30, 36%. 
um, in that time. It's just that the funds ran, ran out, which is the, the next problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but actually it worked to reduce poverty. It worked mm-hmm. to take people out of that, um, that desperate situation. So I really think that the, the, the thing that I would want you guys to think about is, is, totally reviewing society and mm. taking away the capitalistic lens completely mm. and rethinking the way people can add value to the world because it's mm. not always about money making. Mm. I think that's what I would that's yeah. what I would think about. And you know before we because there are very important issues to discuss around that but I think two quick points that we need to um quickly deal with in a, a few sentences is the issue of spending and the issue of laziness and passiveness. Um because you know it, it's when you bring up an argument a debate like this the first opinion actually is going to be that poor people make bad um purchasing decisions but the world bank actually did a survey on this and found that it wasn't true uh, the, the the clear answer was that they don't the opposite is actually true that the rich that the richer you are the more you make bad purchasing decisions because the more disposable income you have yeah. but if you have 350 really <laughs> Are there even decisions that can be made around that? But also the second issue on laziness and passiveness. Again, there was proof that people, uh, there was a, a, um, a test done in Canada where people were given um, a UBI over a certain amount of time, I think two years, and it did show that they did reduce the amount of hours they were working by 10%. But it wasn't to party. It was to achieve goals like looking after their children. Mm-hmm. So moms took more time to be at home, but you also had a lot of people going back to school. You also had a lot of people starting businesses. So I think those two issues, again, speaking to what you said, Humoto, are just issues that I think we, we need to um, just quickly and decisively deal with before we have um, a, a, a deeper conversation about all the other stuff around UBI, like the economic visibility and inflation and how do we fund it and the political risks, but also dignity for workers. And so it brings me to my first question to, to Neo, because, you know, in your speech, you were talking more about the practical elements um, around work. But again, you know, bringing up my studies, um, 33% of people working are actively engaged. 16% are miserable. 51% are only physically present, which means that realistically, if you introduce the UBI, you could have 67% of, of your population not working. What are your thoughts around that? You could have 67% of your people not working, but they'll be much more satisfied because they're actually doing things that matter. I think at the end of the day, it goes without saying, and I repeat what I said in my first speech, that a lot of the jobs that have actually been enacted by capitalism in many instances are jobs that don't really have any kind of economic utility for those people. They are just derivatives of people saying that we want to keep these people passive. And in many ways, we think that the best way to do it is to create jobs that don't offer any kind of uh, incentive, social incentives for those people to have some kind of upward mobility. And at the end of the day, I think um, a UBI... In most instances, if I can just use a practical example, for instance, in uh, Alaska, they had it. It was the only state in the United States where they had like, quote unquote, sovereign, sovereign wealth fund from, from, from the profit that they were making from oil. And what happened is there was like a downturn in the number of people that were uh, alcoholics, mm-hmm. uh, the number of people that were on drugs. They had a huge opioid crisis there. And in many ways, women became liberated because you stay in marriages that you're not really happy about. Mm. Because I think it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a problem that we have to address that it's not only just an argument for philosophy 
philosophy or for just economics, mm. but it's also in many ways just redefining the relational views that we have about each other. That money should not just be um, about you being economically productive, but it can be an enabler for you to just redefine yourself as a person. Yeah. But you, okay, sorry, Will. Yeah, just to, just to jump in quickly. Yeah. I mean, I think another important thing to stress about mm. the potential that a UBI opens is also, I think, strengthening the collective bargaining position of labor. And I think that if people, for example, took comfort in the fact that if they were to risk their jobs trying to protest for better labor conditions, they would still have a safety net to fall back on. We could reimagine the workplace in a whole bunch of, I think, creative ways. One thing that I think, for example, uh, in, in, in Catalonia and Southern Spain, one of the things that is abundant there is worker cooperatives Mm -hmm. where the ownership management and control of a firm is not only vested in shareholders, but also vested in people that work there. It's also, a part of Spain that has also experimented with universal basic income. And I think that freeing up the power for labor to demand great involvement in the workplace is what a UBI provides for. And people would get much more job satisfaction if they also played a direct role Mm -hmm. in how their affairs in the workplace were determined. But isn't this putting too much to the expense? uh, I mean, you're, you're leaving a lot up to an individual at a heavy cost to the state. And Priscilla spoke about this. Um, but also she spoke about this, the disruption of social programs that um, would obviously be done away with if you were now replacing welfare with UBI. And I, I want to give you, Priscilla, uh, an opportunity to just, um, you know, rehash that, but also just perhaps, you know, respond directly to the things that Neo and, and William uh, and have said so far, which seem great. But, you know, to me, it's all uh, it's all very um, conceptual. Mm-hmm. Priscilla? We think that it really looks good to say that you give people money and you expect them to do something that is going to help them at Mm. the end of the day. But in reality, we need to understand that we have a lot of social programs that are currently happening that are funded by the government. But now that the government needs to fund everyone else, it means it it now shifts its focus from the very same people that you think are going to be helped in this instance and is now focusing on everyone. Because this UBI is going to be given to each and every resident Mm. in South Africa. So it means the government is not only focusing on those poor people who we think are not creative enough currently mm. to, or even, to even start entrepreneurship mm. or to even start their own businesses. Within that now, it becomes a problem because the government we have is not in the right place to actually ensure that we create this whole idealistic world where people are most likely to even um, have a great le- we For us to even have a great level force in South Africa, whether there's a problem, there isn't really any direct, like, re- practical mechanism that deals with the fact that government is not going to ensure that these people actually change their lifestyles in the way they are right now. But but what what would you suggest as ways to to give people agency and to uh, give um, some kind of practical implementation to their creativity? Because at the same time, you have an economy that's not growing, and you're putting a burden on you know the average person in a township to start a business. Uh, for most of them, it's survival. It's not even entrepreneurship. So. What other kind of things could the state be doing for people that are, um, you know, at the receiving end of um, economic inequality? Um, I think the state should create incentives like actually motivating, uh, like creating middle class jobs, for mm. example, because we know that... Re- 
as much as automation will take over, but there will still be people that will be needed. But apart from that, we know that there are some jobs that are still going to exist at the end of the day. Mm. So we can look at those jobs and focus on them. Because what we need to understand is also we need to prioritize the country right now. Mm. For that country to stand still and still be able to provide other social aids, it still needs to get some form of funding. Mm. So when we actually motivate people to be productive, and I think that's something that's important, to ensure that they don't just get receive any income, they need to they need to work hard for that. It erases some form of mediocrity in mm. that particular country and actually pushes them to reach a stage where they are able to actually have jobs that are alongside the robots and automation mm. in the fifth industrial revolution. Sure. Dumelo, you've been nodding. I'm assuming you want to add on to what Priscilla is saying. So I think it's kind of, well, kind of just to respond to these, like mm. what they said a little bit, right? Mm. Whenever Socialist. we think, whenever we think about like UBIs, right? We always look at like the first world, right? Mm. Developed nations are the ones that have like the Croatia's very Eastern mm. European countries. Mm. But we have to take it back home, mm. right? And how we would implement it in South Africa because mm. contextually it'd be very much different. Mm. The reason why I'm agreeing with her is the fact that if we were, right, as if the state were to, for instance, let's say, focus on social programming because youth unemployment is very you, like it's very high. It's very high. That's the right mm. word. It's very high. If the government was to focus on social programs, um, that kind of encourage the youth to kind of be more integrated within the fourth industrial revolution, like things that are geared towards like your coding and that type of stuff. Because realistically, millennials go to university to study a degree and then create a job out of that. Not the other way mm. around. Because we oftentimes people are like, I'm going to study, become accounting, become an accountant. That doesn't happen nowadays, mm. right? People create their own jobs because realistically, they don't want to go into that field. And I think if there was more agency in the sense that people were aware of these opportunities and how to kind of create this own mm. job for themselves, I mm. think that would be a, like a path towards happiness as they would like want mm. and like something that seems feasible. But in, speaking of feasibility, because, you know, it's probably the most important aspect that we need to get into. How do we fund? How do we fund it? Is it higher taxes for the wealthy and if that's the case, how many are there in South Africa? Because mm. also when we look at the, the multinational corporation model, we have to be mindful of the fact that most of these are not even, you know, operating within a South African context. Mm. But also in the context of 4IR, mm. you know, would we be taxing robots? But considering that most companies that are outlaying staff aren't necessarily replacing those people with robots, but more digital platforms. Mm. You know, your banks are telling you that the reason why we're getting rid of 2,000 people is because our, our, um, our bankers are now using the app. Mm. So there's no robot in that context mm. to, to tax. Mm. So, you know, uh, we have to address this economic visibility issue. I think it's an important one. So I think this is more of a historical conversation to be had about South African capitalism on its own. At the end of 1994, what the South African government came up to with industry is that we will basically slash taxes and we will create a social net where individuals are able to accrue some kind of benefits like a social grant. And what happened is that there was a race to the bottom. That's why you have so many African headquarters based in Santon. Now, the incentive was that we're going to tax you between 25 to 42%. That is unheard of in the development, developed world, the same developed world that Dumelo is speaking about because in many instances, a recognition that for you to have very serious economic interventions – you need to attack, you need to tax the wealthiest in the world excessively. And what's happened most of the time is that there's been a lot of right-wing conspiracies, unfortunately, in countries like South Africa, where we're told that well, there'll be capital flight when you tax a lot of these people. The first thing that we need to do is to question why there's so many, there's so much savings, um, on the backdrop of a lot of multinational corporations, where they're actually saving more than they are investing, meaning they have more than enough money to be taxed. But the second one is we need to be questioning whether the policies that have been enacted through things like CODESA are actually still beneficial to the majority 
majority of South Africans today. And I think you'll get ra- any any rational person will get to the answer that that is indeed not true and it will not happen. Um, but lastly, I think the the one thing that we all should we should also be questioning then at the end of the day is if we do not tax the wealthiest South Africans, what is the long term consequence of this? You will still see rampant inequality. And the defense of neoliberalism, I think, in 2019 is, in, is, is simply not defensible anymore because structurally speaking, it's just not working. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, just to, sorry, just to quickly jump in, uh, I think a lot of people in South Africa tend to think that the South African government has a pretty progressive yeah. and a pretty advanced tax model, but it's, it's actually mm. hasn't caught up with the world since 2008. In fact, most countries across the world haven't caught up with the way businesses are operating in the post-2008 world where a lot of capital these days is generated not through heavy investments in industry but through speculative capital, mm-hmm. owning a vast asset and stock portfolio and designing such that it creates an elaborate web of businesses that you own and different assets that you own which some of them aren't even based domestically but are based in offshore havens so on and so forth. And our tax model has been unable to stop the bleeding of funds mm. outside of the country. Everyone mm. is, you know, panicked, the panicked about capital flight. Capital flight's mm. been taking place and since forever, the right? forever, exactly. And we haven't found a way to catch up with that. And I mean, people will say, well, what if these companies will choose to migrate out of the country? Well, I think the truth is about a lot of business in Africa. And that's one of the reasons why I'm personally skeptical about the, the full, uh, spread of the fourth industrial revolution is that it's probably much better to operate here given just how exploitative labor currently mm. is that I don't imagine that we're going to see such a drastic flight away. I mean, where mm. would they go? Um, so mm. yeah. that's what I think. Yeah. And, you know, actually on, on, on that issue of the dignity of workers, I mean, you think about people who do uh, dirty, unfulfilling labor, people working in sewers and pipes and that sort of thing. UBI does give them leverage to demand higher wages, which, you know, um, breathes life to the conversation on, on, on dignity. But before we close and I give to the expert to give us our final opinions, I just want to hear what your personal opinion on this issue is in a quick sentence or two, UBI in South Africa or not. Will? Okay, so I, I do support a UBI, but with one important caveat. I think that everyone is right to, I think, be afraid of whether or not it can properly take hold. And I think that mm. a UBI, in my view, can only really take hold in the way we want it to if it's supported by strong social movements mm. and empowering workers themselves to make mm. these demands. But at a conceptual level, in closed rooms like this, then I think it's doomed to fail <laughs> if that foundation isn't set. No. Um there's not really much to add to that. I do support UBI. I think most of the time um the 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 idea is that economic precarity is the assumption that individuals are just supposed to end like that. And I think with a UBI in many instances you actually you actually allow people to do more than just the specific job that they're doing themselves. So for me it's just more about saying how to become more how do people become more entrepreneurial, but also how do they unlock the kind of economic opportunities that they've always wanted. For instance, if you're say for instance a philosophy student that really doesn't want to become a philosopher anymore and you get a thousand rands every month, you can save five thousand rands and get a camera and be, become a filmmaker and mm. actually do something that you really love mm. i think at the end of the day it's more about unlocking human freedoms mm. um, individual freedoms are something that we hadn't really discussed but i think mm. it's it's, a, it's an important point to raise yeah priscilla 
Um, I think it's a good idea because we have a lot of youth who are woke, who have crazy ideas and like crazy business ideas going around. But the reason why those are failing is mm. because they are from backgrounds that don't allow them to have a platform mm. to actually show off their ideas mm. or rather change that. But I think that in the status quo, that would most likely fail because as much as they have crazy ideas and they are all mm. creative and all that, we're still from a place where they're most likely to use that money for slaying and all that because they just do not, ha- they are not financially educated. <laughs> enough to mm. actually make sure that they sustain mm. those businesses because That's if I personally yeah. was given that money, I know I have ideas but I don't know how I'd actually use how that actually, money. Yeah, financial that literacy. Stage. Absolutely. I think we're all saying the same thing. That mm. yeah. Principally it makes sense. <laughs> mm. Principally it makes sense. Principally we all want the money but realistically is it feasibly like will it work out? Because I think one of the things just to like add on to like basically what everyone said is that happiness is kind of tied to like economic stability. Mm. Once you have a foothold in your reality, then mm. you can like, like want to aspire to be happy. Mm. Most people aren't aspiring to be happy, and I think mm. this would be great. Mm. But mm. in real life, in the world, I'm not sure. Mm. I'm gonna hand over to our uh, our experts to to give us a, a closing view here. And uh, you know, just uh, before but before you do that, I also just want you to speak about political risk because I didn't ask the question. I knew it would be heated and flared up, and I just want <laughs> you to maybe speak on that. You know, um, how. Um, a potential introduction of a UBI could lead to the rise of demagoguery politics and rhetoric-based politics where the, sh- the you know, your, your social structure and your political structure is shifting based on, you know, who's offering you a higher UBI that is whether or not it can be sustained is a question for another day. But how can we also deal with the issue of, 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 of the, you know, the risks? Um, but, but also this issue of financial literacy, which again is an issue that we didn't delve into, but is an important one because um, we're all young people sitting in this room. We all have an idea that we think we would um, act on if we had a hundred thousand rand tomorrow morning, but would we? Um, and on that note, I'm going to hand over to you. So I think on politics, I mean, politics is always going to be politics. So, mm. uh, you know, even if there was no UBI, mm. politics is going to be based in, in, in people's rhetoric. It's going to be based mm. in false promises. Mm. It is what it is. Mm. I don't think that's something that will necessarily come with a UBI. Mm. I think that's just the way it is. Okay. I also think our politics is so deeply wrapped up and connected and entwined with business mm. um, that that might be something that is a stumbling block actually in terms of reaching those goals. Um, on financial literacy, I think that, and it really ties up with some of the other things that I was thinking, that I think that we are struggling because we are raised in a capitalist system, born mm. and raised, lived. We can't even imagine a different society. Mm. So everything that we're saying seems conceptual and even far-fetched mm. because we can't even imagine a society that isn't based in greed. Mm. Um, so I think that that is, is something we really need to interrogate within ourselves. Um, even on financial literacy, as much as, yes, we, you know, you get a hundred thousand rands today, your, your inclination is to spend mm. because it is, it's almost natural now mm. that I need, I have money. I must use yeah. it. Mm. <laughs> I, can't, I can't just keep mm. it and save it and invest it. It's almost an, a, a reflex mm. at this point because we are raised in a particular way. Mm. We are raised to not only want money, but to hoard it and then spend it for our own personal benefit Mm. so i think that we we a lot of this comes from a lot of this will only be uh, aided or facilitated by a lot of education Mm. and almost indoctrination Mm. to make people rethink money Mm. um, and really rethink the idea of money and what that means and productivity and if productivity is necessarily tied to our value um 
And then I thought about uh, the, 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 the idea of the fourth industrial revolution and the fifth industrial revolution. And I wonder why we're so afraid of machines taking over. Um, I, I'm not afraid of machines taking over. If, <laughs> if somebody, and I think that we need to mm. think, why are we so scared because mm. of all these weird movies that we're seeing? Mm. <laughs> why are we so afraid of mm. technology taking over? Mm. If we had a society where indeed the robots did the things mm. and you Let could do the things. And we could, and, 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 and human beings can, things. Yeah, human beings can, exactly. And, 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 you know, we're talking about human freedom and, and ingenuity and mm. time to think and time to breathe. Mm. When does our society, we can't can't even imagine a society where we prioritize joy. Mm. We can't even imagine it. We we're so far from that that all of this sounds crazy because we're not prepared to prioritize joy. Mm. Um, and I think that's that's the last thing I'll say. Sure. So is the UBI mm-hmm. a good or bad thing? The honest answer is I don't know. I don't know yet. I think there needs to be more research. There needs to be bigger tests run. If anyone is running a test, please include me in your sample. <laughs> We need to think about what kind of UBI we want and what we're prepared to give up to pay for it. But the potential is huge. The potential of eliminating poverty is huge. It could seriously reduce the amount of desperation in the world. It could and it could just make us feel less stressed out, for God's sake. I mean, wouldn't that be a good thing? If you're listening to this episode of The Interchange, I hope you're feeling a little bit less stressed out about your day. Um, there's a lot of good minds um, sitting in the room, representative of the potential of the youth in the country. And I hope that at a policy level, we're going to start to see the kind, these kind of conversations happening, conversations that could genuinely move people forward, not just productively, but that could also uh, move them forward in terms of self-actualization. That was The Interchange. See you next time. This was another thought-provoking debate made possible by APSA and Simon, amplifying the voices of young people. The Interchange, seeing Africa through a youthful lens.